thought a fitting passage for us to read before this message, which comes from uh, the overarching Bible as a whole. What are, what are the truths that the Bible as an entire book emphasizes and stresses? But I thought this would be a great passage to read just to give you one example of a passage that uh, stresses these truths we're going to talk about tonight. This is, if you remember, what we called the Mount Everest of the Bible, perhaps the place where the gospel is made more clear than anywhere else in all of the Bible. Uh, let's look at Re- uh, Romans 3, uh, verses 21 to 26. Fested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so... Tonight we are continuing to remind ourselves of the five cries of the Reformation. Uh, The goal here is to press upon us as a church and upon us as individuals the necessity of being committed to these five principles. These are not only biblical principles, but I think we could argue that these are the supreme five principles taught in the Bible. We will return to Joseph next Sunday, but uh, tonight our text continues to be all of Scripture, and our purpose is to get a clear vision of what true biblical Christianity looks like at its core. So this morning we saw two of the five Reformation cries. We saw sola scriptura, Scripture alone, and we saw soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. We said that sola scriptura was the foundational cry of the Reformation. Everything depended on that. The scriptures and the scriptures alone have divine authority over us. And we said that sola deo gloria was the heartbeat of the Reformation. It was a God-centered vision of life that transformed people then and is continuing to transform people today. And so now I want to set the stage for the third Reformation cry. Uh, We live in a day in which many people seem to know that something must be done if they are to die in peace. Um, They have a sense that there is a God that needs to be appeased if they are going to go to heaven. And especially as they come nearer and nearer to the end of their lives, people begin to think about death and wonder whether all will be well with them. And more often than not, their way of comforting themselves is not to look outside of themselves to Christ, but to look back to themselves, to to the good things they've done in life. 
Uh, the way they comfort their consciences when they think about death and wonder if it will be well with them is to appeal to the decent way in which they've lived. The fact that they have not been as bad as other people and they feel like they've lived a, a fairly good life and they, they trust, well, surely that will be good enough for God. There's two things happening there. One is that our society tends to have such a low view of God that we tend to assume that He's going to be pleased with pretty good. Um, we don't think in terms of holiness. Our society doesn't think in terms of God's righteousness, the, the absolute necessity that we be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect if we are to stand in His presence and live you know, the, the typical American uh, has a view of God that is very small. He is a God who, who only gets really upset if someone does something that, that is really, really bad. And so we think God sees sin with as little regard for it as we have. And therefore we can pat ourselves on the back and think, well, surely I've been good enough. The other thing happening here in our society, besides our defective view of God, is that we have a defective view of ourselves. We do not think of God as highly as we ought, but we surely think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Uh, we don't see our sin as being as bad as it truly is, and we esteem our good works far more highly than we should. We act as though we should get all the credit for the good things we've done, forgetting that it's only by God's grace that we have hearts and minds and that we can do anything good, forgetting that apart from faith, even our best works are still vile and sinful in His sight. And so most people just live their lives. And they try not to do anything that's really wicked, and they just live indulging in the pleasures of this world. And when they get a chance to do something nice, they try and take that chance, maybe drop some, some quarters in the Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time. And in the end, they hope that this decent life will be enough. Well, in the days leading up to the Reformation, as well as in many other parts of our world today, people were not quite so careless towards God. Our society is infected with an incipient postmodernism that leaves us all with these vague notions. Maybe none of that stuff matters anyway. Right? Most Americans want to be right with God, but they have only the most obscure notions of who this God even is and only the most obscure notions of what being right with this God even means. It's very different from the days leading up to the Reformation in which people did, despite all of the false teaching they had been given, did continue to have something of a high view of God, at least in terms of His judgment and His wrath. The Roman Catholic Church had taught people about the fires of hell. And there were many popular notions in those days about what hell would be like. We find many, many stories coming out of the Middle Ages about hell having various levels in which various kinds of sinners are tortured in the most grotesque ways, all related to the ways they had sinned on earth. Um, Dante, I think, wrote like this, right? Many of you may be familiar with that. Fear of hell, which is not something common in our day, 
was very common in the Middle Ages. Many people would do whatever the priest prescribed to save themselves or to save their loved ones from hell's torments. And so what did the priest prescribe so that people could be saved from hell? Well, priests taught people to purchase indulgences. That is, they were to spend their money to buy from the church Official documents declaring certain sins forgiven. Uh, The money was considered an offering that went towards the great building projects of the church. And by contributing to these great building projects of the church, your sinful record could be wiped clean. Priests also taught people to practice penance, to fast, to make pilgrimages to holy places and to pray to Mary. In all these ways, they could find a way to avoid the fires of hell. None of this was about God. This was utterly devoid of that God-centered view of life that we talked about this morning. It was all about you finding some collection of good things that you could do in order to be able to be rescued from the fires of hell. Well, that brings us to the third cry of the Reformation, sola gratia, grace alone. Everybody say sola gratia. Sola. Right, sola alone, gratia, grace. As people began to grow in scripture knowledge and the Bible began to be esteemed once again, it became clear that all of these various prescriptions by the priests did not really have a foundation in God's word. The way of escaping hell is not by looking to yourself and the various things you can do. The way of escaping hell is by looking away from yourself, casting your eyes upon God, looking to God to provide for you the way of salvation. Everything necessary to have all of the glories of heaven was freely provided as a gift of grace so that all we have to do is receive it. What a blessing it was back in the first century to hear the gospel of grace. Remember the Pharisees had put such a heavy burden on the people. The people were not only being crushed by the law of God that their own depraved hearts could not fulfill, but on top of that, the Pharisees had added hundreds of extra laws and traditions instituted by themselves, and the the people were just utterly in the dust, incapable of being good enough for heaven. And then Jesus comes with a very different message than the Pharisees. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give it to you. Really, Jesus? I don't have to, I don't have to do this and this and this. You, you're just going to give it away? The message was, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's it? All i got to do is believe? Just, just trust what you're telling me? Just trust you? That's it? What a sweet, sweet message. The gospel of sweet and sovereign grace. Now, at the heart of this truth of salvation by grace alone was this great debate 
over man's free will. Because in the Middle Ages, people just assumed that they had what they needed in and of themselves to do whatever it was that God required of them to obtain salvation. So it was confidence in self. I can do the things that the priests tell me to do. I have the ability to make myself right with God. The message of the Reformers, the message of the Bible, is the opposite. Man's will, by nature, is bound to sin. That we, because of our love for ourselves, because of our love for this world, we are blind to God. We cannot truly come to Him. We cannot know Him. We cannot do what is required to obtain salvation on our own. In fact, according to the Reformers, as soon as we believe that we can obtain salvation of our own free will, we have made it so that salvation is a work of our own, so that we can have the glory. And so they agreed with John Trapp, who said that the friends of free will are the enemies of free grace. You can't have both. And the message of the Bible from beginning to end is that salvation is of the Lord, not of us. And so Martin Luther believed that his book, The Bondage of the Will, was the most important book he ever wrote. He said that this was the book that really got to the heart of true biblical Christianity. He said true Christianity is about a people who were enslaved to sin being set free by the grace of God. If people are not slaves to sin, but can truly desire what is necessary to be right with God in their own, and can obtain that on their own, then the gospel is a sham, and the cross was a waste. Grace must be at the heart of the gospel, because grace is what was being displayed at the cross. If people are blind to God... If people are in bondage to sin, if people are unable to do good, then that means ultimately it is God and God alone who can save them. We cannot free ourselves. God must do it. And so they taught that salvation is of grace, of of sovereign grace. What do I mean by that phrase, sovereign grace? Well, Joel Beakey defines sovereign grace this way. He says, by free sovereign grace... We mean that the supreme God of heaven and earth, the sovereign triune God of salvation, freely wills and applies saving grace to guilty, contemptible sinners, transforming their lives so that they enjoy Him and live for His service. In other words, from beginning to end, it is God who works salvation for us and in us. That is what Romans three twenty one through 26 is about. You see it clearly, verse 24. If you want to notice it there, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And so I simply ask us, Mount Hermon, are we absolutely committed to the truth of God's amazing grace? Do we believe that God's grace is so vast that even the worst sinner can be saved by God? Are we still thrilled that God would choose to set His love on us in spite of all our sins? Are we clear in our preaching and our teaching 
in our conversations with others, in our instruction of our children, that we are to look to God and to God alone for our salvation and to nothing that we can do. Many of you have heard the acrostic for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. We have been given the riches of God, the enjoyment of Him forever. And it has not come to us by our works. It has come to us by Christ's work for us. Are we humbled by what Christ did on the cross to purchase us for God? Are we living as people who once were slaves and now we've been set free and we were not set free at a small cost. The price to set us free was an incredible cost. God Himself suffering, enduring His own wrath. Are we aware that we have received a gift that millions of others around us have not received? And does this put us on our faces in a humble gratitude to God? We must be committed to the bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we also must be committed to the glorious good news. Romans 3.24 That sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so to God be all the glory in our salvation. Amen? Okay. Now... Romans 3.24 brings us to the fourth Reformation cry. It says that sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no other way of salvation. The fourth Reformation cry is this one. Solus Christus. So everybody say Solus Christus. All right, solus alone, Christus Christ, Christ alone. It's Wednesday night, Reformation Day party. We'll be hearing again about Luther and his 95 theses. Six years after Luther posted his 95 theses in Germany, uh, Jürich Zwingli over in Switzerland said, well, that seemed to go well for Luther. I'm going to post some of my own. And so he went and posted his 67 Theses, And here was his second thesis that he posted for the world to see. Here was his second thesis. The sum of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, has made known to us the will of His heavenly Father and redeemed us by His innocence from eternal death and reconciled us to God. Third thesis. Therefore, Christ is the only way to salvation to all who were, who are, and who shall be saved. Fourth thesis. Whoever seeks or shows another door, errs, yea, is a murderer of souls and a robber. This was huge for the reformers. Why? Because the Bible is so clear on this issue that Jesus is, what did he say? The way. Right? To God. No one comes to the Father but by Him. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which men can be saved. So many people in that day had, had stopped looking to Christ. They were looking to, to Mary. They were looking to dead saints. They were taught that there were some people who had been so holy in their lifetimes that they had extra merit. More than they needed to get to heaven. Now consider that. 
to have more righteousness than you need to get to heaven. And they were taught that if you pray to those saints, their extra merit can be applied to your account. And so hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, were looking to this saint and to that saint, venerating these saints, worshiping these saints, worshiping their bones, rather than looking to Christ alone. Now, obviously, this is a cry that we need to make loud and clear in our own day. Um, We have two men running for president, both of whom claim to be Christians, both of whom deny the gospel. They are indicative of our culture. There are many people in our society who do not call themselves Christians at all, but believe they can be right with God in some other way. And then there's a much larger slice of our society that wears the name Christian, but is still looking to all sorts of other places instead of Christ for salvation. Pluralism abounds. Millions believe that it does not matter what you believe as long as you believe something In the end, all spokes of the wheel lead to the same center. So you take the Buddhist path, and you take the Muslim path, and I'll take the Christian path, but we're all going to end up in the same heaven. For the reformers, solus Christus, Christ alone, it was more than just a slogan. They saw how the Bible clearly lays out why Christ and Christ alone is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only God-man. He is the only one who who was the Son of God and is the Son of God and now has become a Son of Man and is therefore able to be the mediator, the go-between, between God and man. Jesus alone has bridged the infinite gap between transcendent God and created man. What's more, Christ alone has taken on himself the three offices required for salvation. Jesus alone is the great prophet, making known to men God's truth. He alone is the great priest who laid himself down as the sacrifice for sinners, presenting himself before God, now interceding for us. Christ alone is the great king, able to give sight to the spiritually blind, able to change their hearts and draw them to himself, give them faith and make them his. Christ is both the one who has accomplished salvation and Christ is the one who by his spirit now applies salvation. Christ is everything in salvation. He alone does everything necessary. You look at other religions. Do they give you a Savior who does anything close to what our Bible teaches that Christ has done? Church, what is your confidence concerning your peace with God? If I were to ask you the famous question, how do you know that you are God's? How do you know that He is yours and you are His and that you will be with Him forever? What would you say? Would you point to something you have done? Would you dare say, Oh, I know that I'm God's because one time I did. Or would you, of course, say, My hope is Christ and Christ alone. He is everything. Don't trust in your knowledge 
so easy to think that having a lot of theological knowledge somehow means you're saved. Not true. Don't trust in your works, though you may have done so much for this church or so much for God and in other places. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your feelings. Don't assume that just because I feel that I have peace with God, I have peace with God. We are to look away from self. We trust in Christ, in Christ, in Christ alone. Where do we find our strength every day? Where do we find our peace? Where do we find our security? Where do we find our joy? Horatius Bonar wrote this. He said, God does not fill us anew with strength in ourselves, depositing it in us that we must have it at pleasure. Rather, he said, our strength like our life is deposited in Christ. Christ is our strength. It is only by having continual recourse to Him that we are strong. Can you resonate with that? Do you know what it is to see that Christ is your life and that all the strength you have to face each day and to do what God has called you to do comes from looking to Christ, feeding upon His Word, going to Him in prayer, communing with Him. Bonar wrote this hymn, My Life my everlasting life art thou, my health, my joy, my strength I owe to thee. Because thou livest, I shall also live, and where thou art in glory, there I too shall be. Thou with us, and thou in us, this is life. Can you say things like that? <laughs> Real life is not finding the perfect spouse Real life is not getting that dream job. Uh, real life is not getting into the school that you desire. Real life is not found in popularity or entertainment or sports or stuff. Real life is knowing Jesus Christ, diving into His glories, being a part of His great work. Christ is mine. I am His. That is real life. And we ought to accept no substitutes apart from Christ the best thing we've ever known is still death real life is found in Christ in Christ alone so if salvation is all of grace and if it comes to us through having Christ then the most important question in the world is this one how can I have Christ how can I be connected to Christ? How can I be united to Him, made one of His people, made one of His sheep, made part of His bride? Christ is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing of spiritual, eternal significance. So the most important question for my salvation, for my life to have any meaning in this world that ultimately brings glory to God and brings me to heaven, the question is this, how do I connect to Christ? That was the central battle of the Reformation. How does one connect to Christ, causing all that he did in his life, death, and resurrection to be applied to our souls? It's great to know that there's a cure for whatever your disease is, but it doesn't help unless it is applied. How do you apply the cure of Christ to your disease of sin and guilt before God? How is one justified, made right with God, 
given peace with God. And the answer of the Bible was the fifth cry of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. Luther went so far as to say this was the doctrine on which the church of Christ would stand or fall. He said, this doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. Without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. That's how important this doctrine of faith alone is. Roman Catholicism taught then, still technically teaches, that justification is the righteousness of Christ infused into the soul. Uh, That justification is given through the church. Uh, The justification begins with baptism and continues with the other sacraments. And as the Christian receives more and more of these sacraments, they are receiving Christ's righteousness infused into the soul. And as long as the Christian remains this way, he is safe. But if he commits a mortal sin, and there are certain sins that are called mortal sins, that all that you've done in those acts is now lost and you need to be re-justified. You need to have your justification returned to you. And therefore you perform penance. And you go to a priest and you confess your mortal sin. And then the priest, as a representative of Jesus Christ, declares, I absolve you. The priest assigns these works of satisfaction, which the person must now do in order to have the justification returned. Saying a certain number of prayers to Mary, giving alms to the poor, things like that. And by performing these works of satisfaction, justification is returned and the soul is safe again. And so Roman Catholicism does teach the necessity of faith. It says when you, when you receive baptism, you must do so in faith. When you receive the other sacraments, you must do so in faith. But that faith alone will not save you. If you commit a mortal sin, if you lose that justifying grace, it does not matter what faith you have. Until you have done those works of satisfaction, you will not be saved. And so for Catholics, the equation was faith plus works equals salvation. The reformers said no. The Bible teaches a very different equation. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. The moment a sinner looks to Christ in faith, that very moment he is justified before God. He is truly and forever saved, and that justification can never be lost. The Reformers taught that justification is not infused righteousness, but imputed righteousness. That it is Christ's righteousness applied to our account before God. Calvin said it this way. He said, justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And this is by faith and faith alone. The Reformers got this from passages throughout the Scriptures. Right here, verse 22, verse 25, verse 28. Verse 28 says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Right? Very clear. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The idea is we have no merit to make ourselves right with God. 
Christ is the righteous one, and by being united to him in faith, his merit becomes our merit. His merit is brought to our account. His grades on our report card. Dan, preaching Tuesday night, said it this way. It's Jesus' resume placed on our file. And it's union with Christ that makes this happen. It's, it's union with Christ that takes His perfection and applies it to our account. And how are we united to Christ? By faith and faith alone. Marriage is a great illustration of this. What unites two people in marriage? What makes the two one? Ultimately, what unites two people in marriage is the exchange of vows so that they become one in a covenant relationship. And ultimately what's happening in a marriage is the groom says to the bride, I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will cherish you. I will love you. And then the bride says to the groom, I give myself to you. I will trust in your care. I will trust in your provision. I will trust in your protection. I will follow you and be yours. And this is what marriage is. It's it's through these promises. Promises made, promises believed and received that the two become one. Well, in the same way, Christ comes to us through the gospel. And he says, I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will cherish you. I will love you. And what is faith? Faith is responding to that gospel with, Okay, Jesus, I will trust in your care. I will trust in your provision. I will trust in your protection. I will trust in your cherishing and in your love. I will follow you and be yours. And just like in that wedding moment when the vows are made, when we come to Christ that way and say, I will trust in what you have promised, that is what makes us one with Christ. That is what makes Him our bridegroom and us a part of His bride. When a husband and wife become one, what belonged to each of them is now both of theirs. Okay, so for example, if one of them comes to the marriage with great riches, now those great riches belong to both of them. This is what happens when we respond to faith, respond to Christ in faith. We become one with him, and he is rich in righteousness. He is all righteousness. And when we become one with Christ, His righteousness accomplished in His life, 33 years culminating in His laying Himself down on the cross for us, that righteousness in which He is rich now becomes ours. In a marriage, if either the bride or the groom comes into that marriage with many debts, they both share the debts. Well, when we come to Christ in faith, He brings the riches, we bring the debts. That's the way it works. We get to share in His riches, and now it appears that Christ is going to share in our debts. But Christ has prepared for this. He has already taken our debts upon Himself, and He has paid the price for them. And therefore, through faith, we are united to Christ, His righteousness becomes ours, and our sins are forever gone and paid for. We are not yet made perfect in heart and soul, but before the eyes of God, 
Because we are Christ, we are legally righteous in his sight, and God is just to pour out his incredible love and blessing and favor upon us. And so Luther said, faith lays hold of Christ and grasp him as a precious possession, just as the ring holds the jewel. And so I picture a jeweler placing the diamond in the clasp of the ring, and he's making sure that the diamond will be grasped so tightly that it will never fall out. That is what faith does. Faith hears the gospel. Jesus' promise of love. Jesus is coming to us through the gospel saying, I've done everything necessary. I'm here for you. I love you. I'm going to protect you, preserve you, be mine. And how does faith respond? By grabbing hold of Christ and saying, yes, I will be yours forever and ever. And I will never let you go. You are everything to me. You are the fairest of 10,000. You are altogether lovely. You are the rose of Sharon. Mount Hermon, we must never play games with this doctrine. Faith is the only way to have Christ as yours. It is the only way to be one with Him. Faith is the only way to have His righteousness made yours. Your sins having been taken upon Him and dealt with at the cross. There is no way of salvation through Christ and there is no way to Christ other than faith. So the question for us is, are we living by faith in Jesus Christ? Are we able to say, yes, I am his and he is mine. I joyfully submit myself to him. I am thankful for his love. I live in the joy of his protection, of his care, of his promises that he made to me. I live resting on them. I live joyfully because of what he has promised me. And I believe he is faithful and I hold fast to him. Is that how you live each day? And if not, I just urge you to wake up and to see the glories of Christ and what is promised to you in the gospel. So Mount Hermon, here are the five cries of the Reformation, the five cries that I hope will characterize our church, I hope will characterize our families, I hope will characterize us as individuals. These are non-negotiables. You should be absolutely committed to these from your top of your head to the bottom of your toes. These are absolutely the things you should be willing to live and die for if they ever come under attack, and they are under attack in our society. Number one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, with Reformation Day coming on Wednesday, you've given us this opportunity to be reminded of these most important truths in the world. And we thank you for every one of them. We thank you for your Bible. We thank you for your sweet grace. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the faith that you have put in our hearts that has united us to him. And ultimately, Father, we thank you that through him we now know you and your glory. Father, you have been so good to us. 
Father, make us a people of worship. Make us a people of praise. Make us a people who know what it is to walk in adoration of you, able to walk each day still astounded that you would set your love on us. Father, help us this week to see those around us who so desperately need your love. Help us to not compromise on these non-negotiables. Help us to know them, to understand them, to believe them, to rest on them. And Father, help us to defend them whenever they are attacked. Father, I pray for the future of this body of believers at Mount Hermon. I pray for the future of this church. Should Jesus Christ tarry for a century, two centuries, three centuries, may this be a church where these doctrines are always proclaimed, always loved, always committed to. And Father, we pray that for us and our families as well, that for future generations, they would hold dear these precious, precious truths. We pray this ultimately for your glory. Amen.